is the Entertainment Beyond Podcast with your host Jensen Dean Jackson and Alan Weinstein, bringing you all things relevant in pop culture and entertainment. We will be with you weekly, at least, talking about movies, politics, music, and all things in between. So check us out. See you next week. Same bad time, same bad station. Hey. Good evening. Good evening. How's it going? It's going all right. How about yourself? Uh, a little tired, but that's what happens when you get old. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> welcome back to another edition of Entertainment Beyond. I know we're hitting you straight out of left field with a Tuesday night delight, but I switched up my uh, job, which allows me to get off early so I can do these podcasts. We can do these podcasts a little bit earlier in the week. As always, I am the bald, beautiful, majestic Jensen Dean Jackson, joined by the recently also bald Alan Weinstein. Ah, get out of here. You're bald too, huh? I shaved my head this morning. Hey, you know, it's, there's a small community of us. Now, are you going bald or was it just a choice? Uh, well, for a long time in my youth, I, I had a bald head just because I liked it. And then for a long time, my wife preferred me with hair and she still does, but I hadn't been to the barber in about four months and it was turning into quite the spectacle on my head. And instead of squirreling out time to actually go to the barber, I decided I was going to shave it for the summer. So we'll see if I'm going to let it grow back. We'll see if come the, the fall three or four months from now, if I want to shave it again. But right now I'm very happy with it. So. Going uh, cool for the summer. That's right. Yeah. You remember that scene uh, <clears throat> and uh, Harry Potter movie number four of the Goblet of Fire when Voldemort comes back and he's like kind of running his fingers over his head, you know, kind of like he's glad to be alive. Yes. That's the feeling I get every time I freshly shave my head. So I have that image of Voldemort in my head, just like running his fingers over his scalp. That's one of the creepiest scenes because I think that's the first time that you actually see him. Yeah, in, in the flesh. Glory. Yeah, in the flesh, and it's like, oh, he's super creepy. They did a good job of making him look super creepy. Fucking absolutely. So, all right, ladies so, and gentlemen, I, I guess I don't know what you decide to do. I. Uh... So that was operator malfunction on my part. That wasn't the app. I dropped the phone, and apparently when it fell, it clicked the stop button. So oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say that was the shorter time. I, what I was trying to say is I don't know uh, what your list ended up looking like, but I, uh, I figured it didn't have to stay top villains from Marvel. It could be like top villains from all the pop culture. Yeah, so basically what I did was I took them from any superhero movie that I I went through and found a list online of all the superhero movies, but it wasn't an exhaustive list because even though there was like 40 on there, it was missing several that I thought were like, um, it it didn't have Watchmen on there, it didn't have uh, Hancock or Kick-Ass, which, you know, they're still superhero movies, I mean, what, you know, for whatever they're their worth so but it did have the bulk of them so i was able to i just kind of went it started with uh superman one according to their list as being kind of the first superhero man or superhero movie so i started back that far and just kind of i went with the top 10 over you know just the basic superhero movies of all time so and then um in talking with you a little bit further and tweaking out the criteria we decided i guess on a character and the actor in that particular role as opposed to just the villain. So my list would look a little bit different if I was just picking the Joker as opposed to having to choose uh, one of the actors that played the Joker. So Yeah, you had um, like four different choices for actors. Right. The original so, choice was Cesar, Cesar Romero in the right. TV show, yeah. Right, so um, that being said, my, you know, my list is, uh, is what it is. I have 10... I have the top 10, and then I have, like, four kind of honorable mentions that need to be referenced, so. Um, well, let's we should... uh, uncork this uh, tasty bottle of wine. 
So let me preface this by saying that some of these are from movies that I have not seen in a while and I didn't get it together to watch all them before this podcast. So um, I, it's likely you'll get a more overall kind of uh, review of uh, how I remember the character being and maybe not so much the isolated scenes. I do have some scenes picked out for some characters, but um, for the bulk of them, it's more just kind of how they made me feel is, is how I'm going to kind of review them. So uh, that being said, starting at number 10, I have Sir Ian McKellen as Magneto. And that obviously stretches several films, um, but starting with X-Men 2000, um, you know, Sir Ian McKellen is obviously one of the greatest actors of all time. So he brings, you know, a tremendous amount of acting ability and skill to the role. Uh, he's very charismatic. You know, the, the, the scenes that I thought of with him are, um, well, first of all, that opening scene in X-Men the first movie where he's a kid in the concentration camp and he moves those, um, the, uh, what the gate, you know, before he even really knows what's going on, just that scene in the concentration camp, I'm Jewish. It's a powerful scene. Kind it's of very powerful. The, it sets kind of your tone for Magneto's whole life and kind of view towards everything and why he's cynical towards humans in general and the idea that people can, can be okay and, um, and why he's, you know, kind of rebellious in the first place. And it's understandable. Um, so that seems pretty cool. And then uh, I love the scene where um, it might even be an X3. I'm not sure. I believe it's an X-Men, the first one, where he's got his, he's in his lair and he's got everything's metal and Sabretooth comes in. Um, it's not Lee Schreiber's uh, Sabretooth. No, it's, it's not. It's Tyler Mayne, the ex-wrestler. There you go. Okay. And he, he, and he uh, pulls the uh, dog tags. I think they're Logan's dog tags off of Sabretooth's neck. Wolverine's dog tags, I think, um, and pulls them towards him. That's a pretty cool scene. So overall, you know, Magneto um, is just a really cool character. And obviously, Sir Ian McKellen is a great actor. Well, not only is he a really cool character, but he is one of the one of the only truly not evil villains. Like, especially someone going through something like that. It makes his character so much more interesting than just the atypical villain who wants to destroy everything. A guy who has lived through a lot of fucked up shit, seen the worst side of humanity, and chose not to turn the other cheek. Definitely. Yes, I... Uh, Without a doubt. I, 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 I love that character, yeah. yeah. The duality of him is, is, is very cool. And, you know, with... with McKellen's acting ability he's able to really bring that sense of he's good at bringing life to that feeling of angst and 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 you know is this the right thing to do and yet at the same time when he has to get vicious he has no problem getting vicious because he is committed to his ideology ultimately yeah I, I think my my favorite part my favorite scene is the one from X-Men, the first one where they're kidnapping Rogue and they walk out of the train station and then all the bad guys start fucking talking to Magneto. And the first time you see it, you're like, wait, wait a minute, like they want to let her go now? Like what the fuck is going on? And then he tells them uh, something about getting out of their head, Charles, and then you see Patrick Stewart mind controlling them and then there's a really cool scene where he draws all the cops' guns and basically is like, you know, this or them and tells them he can't stop them all and then Charles has to let him go. Yes. Yeah, that's a great scene. Yeah, there's a ton of great scenes. You know, being that he reprised that role over several films, it was, I think it was three or four films, there's a ton of great Magneto scenes. Oh, that's right. There's X-Men Days of Future Past too, yeah. I, I like him better than nothing against Michael Fassbender. It's not his fault that they've turned the character into a flip-floppy dumb fuck who can't, you know, like, even the comic books, Magneto never flip-flopped that much. Like, these new X-Men movies, he's a bad guy. And right. then he's a good guy. And then he's a bad Like, that's not who Magneto is. Right. You know, when it calls for times when shit's really on the line, then Magneto will align begrudgingly with Charles, like in X2, 
and Days of Future Past. There's none of this fucking bullshit. Like, yeah, they were friends, but there was a schism that drove them apart and they stayed apart. Right. You know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I thought that the newest, the, the one with Michael Fassbender, that's Days of Future Past. It, it, uh, the first, yeah. Is that the, that's the newest one? Um, no, the newest one was X Men Apocalypse, the worst one. I don't. Yeah, and I'm not even sure. I'm. I. I'm not even positive. I saw that. You wouldn't be missing shit at all. I know I saw Days of Future Past because I know I saw Michael Fassbender as him, yeah, as that's... a young guy. Then that's the first one where I remember they. You know, they're in the school together. They're young. They're like best friends and so on. And then, I am. Um. I like Michael Fassbender, so I mean, I even though I don't think he's Surrey and McKellen, and I don't like necessarily what they did with the Magneto character and the relationship between him and Charles in the later movies. Uh, Michael Fassbender is a good actor. I mean, I, they could have they could have casted someone worse, you know. I mean, they they did a decent job, I thought. They definitely could have. It's Fox. They like to fuck up their shit. Right. Okay. So moving on, coming in at number nine, I have Hugo Weaving as the Red Skull. In Interesting. Captain America one mostly, um, and the main scenes that I remember that struck me as very cool were um, obviously the reveal scene. That's an amazing scene where he pulls his face off and shows you the Red Skull, um, and reveals that he was uh, what's his name, the Doctor's greatest. Johann Schmidt. Right, the Doctor's greatest accomplishment, um, and. Uh, Let's see. I'm trying to read my writing here. I put some notes down here, and now I cannot actually even read them. Um, oh, the scene where he, um, before he's actually removed his face and becomes the Red Skull, where he's got the other Nazi um, hierarchy members or, you know, uh, Reich members in the eye in the room, and he's showing them the death ray, and they're kind of laughing at him, and so he starts killing everybody with the death ray. That, <laughs> that ray, that scene is pretty cool. I mean, that's, that's when you go, okay, this guy's, you know, lost it indefinitely uh, well beyond even the extreme of the Nazis, which is saying a lot. So, um, It's saying everything when it comes to Nazis because those people are pretty extremely disgusting. Sure. And then he was really cool when he's back in, in Endgame. Is it, is that Endgame? wasn't Hugo. I hate to bust your butt, oh, it but wasn't. that wasn't oh. Hugo Weaving. Oh, it wasn't. All right. In both Infinity War and Endgame, it was a dude from, I can't remember the fucking name of it, a real pretty famous dude, a dude from, uh, from, from fucking The Walking Dead, I think. Wow. I don't remember his name. But yeah, Hugo <laughs> Weaving did not like uh, having to sit in the chair for all that makeup, and so it was one and done for him. Yeah. Which is That's... disappointing because there's no one else who so can play good. that role. Well, yeah, yeah, he's such a good actor. I mean, Marvel has continued to amaze me with their ability to draw in really good actors for these movies. And obviously, if you pay somebody enough, they're going to do it. But it's amazing to me because you would think that, I mean, they don't get a lot of, you know, critical acclaim. They're, you're not winning Oscars. You're not winning global, global Golden Globes most of the time. And so to, to, to pull in these, you know, Sir Ian McKellen or or, you know, Hugo, Hugo Weaving or Hugh Jackman, these guys that do win awards for other stuff all the time is pretty incredible. It is. I, I think it speaks to, even though some people would um, condemn comic books as mindless bullshit for children, it speaks volumes to these characters and the staying power of the characters that you have top, top choice grade A actors wanting to tackle them. Like, it shows that these are living, breathing characters that people want to do something with. Definitely. So uh, moving on the list, uh, number eight, this is kind of a two-sided. Um, there's two people here because it comes from the same movie, but I went with um, Bucky here, the Winter Soldier, and Robert Redford, the, the character that, that brings him back, basically, whose name I'm drawing a blank on, and I just heard I just read Alexander it. Pierce. Thank you, Alexander Pierce. So both him and Bucky, and the reason that I'm saying both of them is because really Alexander Pierce is really the more villain. Um, Bucky's just, you know, he's programmed to do what he does, and later he obviously, he's in a way got that same kind of duality that Magneto has, but yet, obviously even more because he ends up coming to the good side 
and and he was never consciously a bad guy. I mean, it was beyond his control. So I put those both here, but um, the scene, that freeway scene in, in Winter oh, Soldier. Oh, man, that shit is so the, car and the camera pans up and his hand is down and they show <laughs> that car. It's so cool. And then they start shooting at everybody. That whole scene is just an amazing scene. So, um, so I have those two both there at number eight. Uh, hey, you know, a, a funny little side note about uh, there are rumors about the Alexander Pierce character that he was just secretly the Red Skull because that was one of the Red Skull's things in the comic books is he'd wear all these different masks to fuck with Captain America. But at the end of the day, it would be the Red Skull. Right. I, was, I remember seeing the movie and being like, come on, like be the fucking Red Skull and like being disappointed, still a decent character, but being disappointed that that wasn't the, uh, you know, no pun intended, but the end game. Yeah, no, definitely. I agree. I, it would have been cool because that was one of the cool things about the Red Skull was that he was able to use different identities, you know, cover his Red Skull with different faces and identities in the comic books and so on to, to confuse Captain America. So it would have been really cool. And it would have it would have given extra depth to that Alexander Pierce character. Um, again, Robert Redford, another phenomenal actor that they were able to pull in for a superhero movie. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I, I can't disagree or I can't agree with that more. Okay, so moving up, uh, number seven. This one was really tough for me, and this is going to be – I'm going to give you seven and then my honorable mention because it's the first honorable mention. So number seven, I have General Zod. And I went with Michael Shannon here, even though the toss-up between him and Terrence Stamp, and that's why Terrence Stamp gets my honorable mention for Superman 2. They're both so – so I was – I don't know where it cut me off, but I had just said that uh, number seven was Zod, General Zod. Yeah, and you uh, gave the honorable mention of Terrence Stamp. Right, yeah. I mean, this one was really hard for me because even though the first three Superman movies, the Richard Donner films, are incredibly campy, Terrence Stamp is asked to play kind of a campy Zod. Even though he's not, he's still intimidating in that campy environment. So I thought he really shines through um, in Superman 2. But Michael Shannon, because that movie Man of Steel is so much darker and grittier, they allowed Michael Shannon to be a much more intense and and scary Zod. I mean, I, I thought that his Zod was much more intense and uh, probably true to, you know, the idea or concept of what a general Zod would be. Yeah, it makes sense that a uh, Superman... <clears throat> would later have to snap his neck. Spoiler alert to anybody who hasn't fucking seen Man <laughs> Steel. Don't know That's why. Team. But that was just uh, the complexity. That was one of my biggest issues with the uh, Superman for a long time. Not that I'm not saying, you know, like I'm not bloodthirsty. He doesn't have to murder people. But there's only so many times he can throw a superpowered being, it, even if it's like a, another dimension jail. If it's proven right. they can break out once, they're going to break out multiple times. Like, I, it completely made sense. A lot of people were mad about that. But, no, it made sense. Like, the dude told him, was like, I'm just going to kill everybody you care about. You care about these people. I'm going to kill them all. And, like, it makes sense that he'd have to snap his neck. Didn't really see it coming. But I really loved that moment of that, that movie. I did, too. I thought it was really cool. I mean, when he, after he does it and then he falls to the side of him and, and he starts to almost cry or he maybe even does cry. You can, you understand again, the complexity of even though Zod is a villain in, in many respects in the ultimate respect that he's a, a bad guy, I guess, it, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And he's another one of these guys that like Thanos in some respects, he, he's trying to, he wants to save his Kryptonian culture and, and, you know, every one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And and you can sense that, not not that per se, and, and not a clinging to Zod for any ideology, but just that Zod is the last Kryptonian that he's aware of, you know, and that now he truly is all alone as best he knows. And, and you know, and he had to kill, a, 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 you know, a member of his race like that in such a way that, that is, it has a huge impact on him. And not only a member of his race, but, you know, in the Christopher Reeves OG version, all the other versions, uh, he was the last one of his people 
uh, because of something out of his control. And the most poetic thing about this one is that he is the last one of his people because of himself. Exactly. Definitely. So, uh, moving along here, number six, uh, I got Jeff Bridges as Obadiah Stane from Iron Man. And we've talked about this when we did the Iron Man uh, review, so we probably don't need to get into it too much. But again, Marvel's ability to suck in a great actor. Everything Jeff Bridges does is amazing, in my opinion. Not um, everything. And Ob- Not, have um, you ever most- seen BRPD? <laughs> I have not, but God I'm damn. sure there are some things out there that are bad. Most stuff that he's done, in my opinion, is good. Um, and Obadiah Stane, I think, is no, is no different. Uh, it's a great character. Obviously, um, you know, he, his desire to take over Stark Industries fuels his, his, his motivation and so on. And, and you know, I, I think that there's... Uh, you know, I'm torn. I think that he's a bad guy already to a certain extent by the time Tony comes back from Afghanistan or the Middle East when he was hidden in the, you know, held captive and he comes out in the Iron Man suit and and escapes and he's sitting at the bottom of the podium eating those cheeseburgers and he tells everybody Stark Industries is going to stop making weapons. You, You get the impression that that moment is where Obadiah Stane thinks, oh, shit, he's going to ruin the company. I've got to do something. I've got to take it. But I'm not sure that he wasn't already a little bit of a villain before that. I mean, I you know, I think that he's probably, you know, Tony Stark was the playboy. And this is stuff, obviously, you don't know because it doesn't show really before Iron Man. This is the first movie. But he's the playboy who doesn't necessarily want to be in control of Stark Industries. All he wants to do is build his toys and mess around. Well, Obi's running everything, and that's why he feels he should be in control in the actual movie, too. And I'm sure that prior to coming back, he's already got this idea that, you know, he's the right person for the job and that it should be his company and so on. So, I, you know, he was he's intimidating his, his bald head, his goatee, all that stuff in that film. He, there's scenes where they they um, John Favreau, uh, the director, clearly puts the, the, the camera angle at such an angle that Obadiah Stane is looming over. Tony Stark in several scenes, you know, uh, until they battle, of course, and so on. And then the great scene at the end where Tony asks him how you deal with the freezing problem. And he says, what freezing problem? And then proceeds to freeze and fall out of space. So that's, you know, the final scene, basically. But just a great character and a great actor, again. Yeah, and you have to, I don't know how long it's been for you since you've seen it, but you remember that there's that one really creepy scene where he gets Tony with that fucking whatever that thing was that made him go all veiny and ghost white, and he told him that he was the one that was responsible for his kidnapping and all that shit, and, like, basically oh, that's right. that's the third-act right. reveal of Obadiah Stane being a bastard. That's right, just, yep. Yeah. That's it, right, yeah, yep. But no, it's a, a fantastic uh, actor, and I had only seen him in parts with, with hair and shit. So when I saw that, it was like really drew me back. And I was like, holy shit. And you know that was like nothing but his bald scalp. Like that's some, some acting. And again, you know, the only thing I could really say negatively about it is that uh, media and cinemas and all that continue to paint us bald people as the bad guys. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to get started on a whole tangent about it. But the prejudice definitely exists towards the standard of what a bald person be. At least we're never portrayed as child molesters. That's all I can say. Like, portray me as, like, a murdering psychopath. Like, but, you know, <laughs> the people with hair are the child molesters, what I'm drawing from this. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it seems to be that Hollywood, uh, most pedophiles tend to have hair. And yeah, and they always that. have, like, full heads of hair. It's never, like, stringy. It's, like, luscious <laughs> locks of love. You know, you look at the guy with the bald heads, like, that guy killed, like, a whole family today. But he didn't molest any children. That's funny. So uh, let's see. Okay, so moving along here. Number five. Coming in at number five is Tom Hiddleston as Loki. And obviously, you know, he reprised the character many times. So there's tons of scenes. Too many probably to mention. Um, You know, the scenes that that really stick out to me are um, 
the scene uh, in New York where he appears and he's got the scepter and he has everybody bow and the old man doesn't want to. And uh, just that whole scene where he shows up. And I think that might even be really the first time that we see Loki. I think that's the first Thor movie. Maybe it's the Avengers. I'm not sure. That was Avengers the Avengers. Movie. First Avengers movie. Um, and uh, just how cool he looked in that outfit and with the scepter. And, and you... If I, I mean, if I'm remembering it correctly, it was before you really start to kind of see him as both a villain and a clown. Not a clown. That, let me take that back. Not a clown, but not as necessarily as intimidating per se as he was the first couple times you see him. He starts to lose his luster a little bit over the films, in my opinion. Although not not losing any of. Tom Hiddleston's acting ability or wry humor or depth to the character, but just a little bit of that sense of intimidation as a villain. He's more mm, slimy, sleazy, comment scoundrel than outright villain, you know? Um, but nonetheless, uh, he, you know, he's very strong in the, in the Marvel universe as an overall bad guy, I think. But again, still some duality because by the end, to a certain extent, he's kind of fighting with the good guys against Thanos, for sure. Um, but that's more in self-preservation than it is to say I'm, you know, I'm really with the good guys. Yeah, very true of Loki's character. I've, uh, I think besides Robert Downey, Go ahead. yeah, I'm saying I think besides Robert Downey Jr., he is he's probably played that character, you know, there's the wreck Robert Downey Jr. holds, no, uh, sorry, someone else does, but what I'm saying is that besides RDJ, I think Tom Hiddleston has played the same character the most in the MCU, or has had the most appearances. I think they're both tied for most appearances in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh-huh. Because he's been in, I mean, Loki's been, and for a long time, he's been the best, uh, the best uh, villain, honestly, and b- until Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin and Josh Brolin's Thanos came along, hands down, he was the best villain in the Marvel Universe. I would agree with that, for sure. Um, so that's number five, coming in at number four. Wait, wait, uh, you didn't say your, your favorite, or did you not pick a scene, your favorite scene for Loki, because he's been in so much? I mean, I didn't, but I did mention that I, I, I think that for me, oh, yeah, the, 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 the New York scene, right, the invasion scene where he shows up and has to make, he makes everybody bow. But the scene um, in uh, uh, um, is it, is it, is it, it's not Endgame, it's uh, the scene where Thanos is holding Oh, Infinity War. His eye out. And, and I mean, that scene with Loki is a great scene, too. Just any scene where he's, you know, talking and trying to con his way out of stuff. I mean, he, he or, you know, has to try to backpedal and, and, and use his gift of gab to try to whatever he can do while Thor's busy, you know, just being straightforward and aggressive. <laughs> yeah, I think my my favorite scene is the one where they break Loki out of prison and Thor the Dark World. And then he turns into Captain America. I can't remember what he said, but it was so fucking funny. And you got that cameo from Chris Evans and just that scene. And when he turned into Captain America uh, and in the middle of Endgame. Right. Yeah. So that's number five. So number four, I have Kate Blanchett as I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce her name. I believe it's Ella. Hella? Hella? Hella. I think it's Hella. And I don't have a scene for her just because I wasn't able to get Ragnarok, but just the idea that I didn't get the chance to watch it again and I don't remember as a lot of specific scenes. I mean, I, I remember the scene where she um, destroys the roof of, I guess it must be Odin's palace and shows Thor the real history that's painted on the roof or the ceiling. Um, that was not, pretty fucked up. If I'm not mistaken. Um, and the first time you see her in that spandex outfit with her mask and her horns on. She just poses, you know, cuts an intimidating pose for sure. I mean, she Yeah, I bet she, I bet she cut an intimidating pose for you, Alan. <laughs> she is an incredibly beautiful woman. And, uh, yeah, 
obviously latex is always, you know, sexy. Yeah, it's been, it's uh, been working since Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, Batman right. Returns. That's right. And, and actually, that's going to get an honorable mention here because of the latex suit. It made me think of her. I'm going to get an honorable, <laughs> honorable mention just because she was so good. Um, as Catwoman, I thought. And, and the only one that has... Uh, yeah, I'm still here. Drop my phone again. The only one that's really done the role well. I mean, no offense to Halle Berry, who's a great actress, but... That, that one wasn't, was shit. That was, was not it, Catwoman. It wasn't the right role for her. I don't know if it. she didn't like it. I don't know what was going on with her, but I didn't feel a connection from her to that role. And as a result, the movie suffered and the role suffered. But Michelle Pfeiffer as was really good and incredibly sexy and and a great villain. I mean that the dynamic between the two of them, um, Michael Keaton and, and her is is phenomenal. You know um, the the play between them, the flirtiness and then the fighting and the flirtiness and then the fighting and the you know is is pretty incredible. So she got an she gets an honorable mention here for latex suits and sexiness. Um, I'm not gonna not gonna disagree with that. I I kind of like Annie Hathaway's version a little bit more, but she was given a little bit more to do. I yeah. feel like. Yeah. No. I mean, I like Anne Hathaway too. She did a good job as well. I mean, I, when a character's been reprised, when a role, you know, a, a fictional character has been played by so many different uh, good actors or actresses, it's so hard to to try to you know isolate who's done it better. Um, so I don't have any action. Those are the two things that I remember distinctly from Ragnarok and, and, and scenes with her that I... What about when she broke uh, Thor's hammer? Oh, yes. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, they, they did a good job with her, although they could have teased it out even more. I thought they didn't... They almost... In as much as they gave her... Um, a lot of a, a, a good amount of screen time. They could have given her more. I thought that she stole that movie, and that more of her would have been even better. Yeah, they, there was way too less. It was uh, all the uh, build up to it, and it's like every time she was doing something to Asgard, then you cut away Thor and Sakar, and it's just kind of like, why did they have to? I don't get. I don't get this. Right. You know, you've got a great A actor and Kate Blanchett. And you're not utilizing her to her full fucking potential. That's like one of the greater things, and one of like it's like a a, a win and a loss of Marvel. They get these really good actors, and they don't really let them do shit. Yeah, no, there are definitely times that they that they seem to get good actors for characters that they don't develop well enough, or they don't know how to develop well enough, or they pull them in for characters that really don't have uh, you know an overall an over arcing storyline that that really justifies having a good actor alexander pierce is a good example like robert redford's a great actor and he he added a lot of great acting to that movie but it's like he's a really good actor for him to just be kind of in and out in one film and not have a character that maybe has more appearances or you know you get more life from him as such a great actor it seems kind of like a waste it is i definitely agree with that all right so moving right along hitting the top three coming in at number three is uh, Michael B. Jordan as Killmonger in Black Panther. And I am a huge Michael G. B. Jordan fan in general. You're a I huge like Michael B. Jew? Yeah, Michael B. Jew fan, absolutely. No. Huge, <laughs> huge Michael B. Jordan fan. Um, I, you know, I liked him as the Human Torch. I love him in the Creed movies, and I especially liked him as Killmonger, Eric Killmonger in... Black Panther. I thought that the villain was written with a lot of depth. Uh, that character. I thought that the way that they showed him in the beginning um, and uh, and then later his obsession with uh, his true place um, provided a lot of emotional uh, connection. Um, that, that, that Michael B. Jordan was able to make with the character and thus with us, us as viewers um, and fans that made the role very good. I mean, he, he's a good actor. So everything he does, um, you know, like I said, I enjoy um, and I think he brings a lot of skill to. So this was no different. That scene 
uh, there, there's a bunch of scenes, but um, the scene where him and, you know, it's basically the end scene of the movie, but the scene where him and T'Challa are fighting with, I, that is that a, I don't even know what that is. Is it some sort of a transport vehicle that keeps coming by? Yeah, vibranium uh, train transport. Of some sort of uh, yeah. thing coming by, but that scene's really cool. Um, you know, uh, where he, you know, says I'd rather uh, die or, you know, when you die, bury me in the ocean with the rest of my ancestors. Obviously, uh, a, I don't know the line per se, but the commentary on, you know, being ba- buried with the rest of his black ancestors. Well, not one to be a slave. Yeah, it was very right. powerful. It's very powerful. And, and there was a lot of social commentary in that movie. I mean, that is by far, um, you know, a, a, a very black power um, strong black message movie and it's and it's great and it's important and it's and and he does a really good job of of being a villain in that film and yet again as with most villains a duality because he's he's there's this you know you you can feel for him and where he comes from and being excluded and not knowing your heritage and feeling like you've been robbed of what's yours or you know that kind of thing and so you know you find yourself at moments almost feeling for him you know some some kind of empathy or compassion for him and then obviously you know when he not becomes the bad guy but when you know when he's in his bad moments you know in his worst moments the scenes where he's you know being you know a villain you obviously remember just how bad this guy is but yeah how good he is the actor is at, at showing both sides of that very true i uh actually my favorite scene from the movie is when he takes the i don't know call them the black panther berries or whatever the fuck they are uh-huh. and he goes to the plane and it basically goes back to that apartment in fucking california and he's sitting there with his dad and his dad i don't remember exactly how it goes down but his dad's like no tears for me and Killmonger, as a, as a, as his younger self says, you know, something like, "Well, we don't really cry. People die around here every day, or something like that." And I thought that was so, yeah. Just another scene that made you like, you know, like he is when you, you see something like that, like you said, and you're like, "Man, I feel so bad for this dude." And then you see him choking out an elderly woman. And you're like, "No, this guy is still a piece of shit," but I feel bad for him. Like it, it causes you to have a duality within yourself. Definitely. And, you know, we're all ultimately um, products of our environment. You know, it, you know, the argument of nurture over nature. I, you know, I think it's both. You know, uh, we have our hardwired nature. Some of us are more aggressive. Some of us are more passive. Some of us are more fearful. Some of us are more brave. But, you know, if you're, if you, if you've been abused, um, you know, you're going to suffer from that. And, and, and it, it can manifest itself in good and bad ways. You know, people go both ways, but it's going to affect you. If you are a product of divorce, it's going to affect you. If you lose a parent or both parents, it's going to affect you. You know, again, not always negatively. Some people are able to turn that into a positive and find a way to, to, to you know, make it motivate them. But either way, you're affected. And clearly he is a product of, of his environment and his circumstances. Very true. So moving on to number two, this was the hardest decision on this list for me. And this will be my third honorable mention. This is where I have the Joker at number two. And I put Heath Ledger's role as the Joker here, but with a very honorable mention to Jack Nicholson, um, Mostly just because Jack was the first to do it, and he's Jack, and he's so good. I mean, you know, that just all the scenes where he shows up in the purple suit for the first time, and he asks him if he wants to dance under the pale moon. I mean, just the way the, the delivery of the, of, the, of the words and the dialogue is so Jack Nicholson and so creepy. I mean, the whole time he's talking, I, I, I keep seeing the shining and just that same kind of, creepiness and ultimate fear in that even though it's a different character that that Jack Nicholson fear oozing through um but that being said that's the honorable mention number two is Heath Ledger you know even though Jack did it well Heath took it just a a little bit more Jack was probably a little bit too sane I guess if you can call it that where Heath 
ability to show that craziness even more, that that true insanity, and embrace it in such a way that was uh, beyond anything I'd ever seen, you know, from anybody playing that role or or any other villain. I think, in my opinion, for the most part, to date, um, up to that point. So um, Heath comes in here, you know, obviously, why so serious? That that line has taken on a life of its own and pop. Um, and there's, you know, again, I didn't get a chance to watch the movie before this, so I don't have any scenes right off the top of my head that are my favorite scenes, but just the, 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 the sense of fear that I got seeing him, um, you know, on the screen, I, there's a scene, I believe where he's in a camera, like a video camera, and he's kind of turning his head around sideways and he's got that. The, the 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 smile painted on and it so yeah he brought so much life and depth to the character so much uh evilness he he you know embodied the character so well that sense of lunacy and craziness that it, you know it's just better than anything else i mean not to caesar romero who did you know a great job at the campy joker and again 1A and, you know, 1 and 1A with Jack Nicholson, you know, but he's just a little bit more. And you can even put Jared Leto there from the Suicide Squad. You know, it, it had he had the, had, you said that they're not going to, he's not going to play the role anymore, but. Well, they, he's been dropping hints that he might or might not be in the Birds of Prey movie. I, it'd be interesting to see him continue to play that role because I like Jared Leto and I thought that he did a decent job. Um, I think, you know, it's probably right now it, it falls below Heath Ledger and Jack for me. But right, you know, probably on par with above Cesar Romero. And mostly just because the stuff from, you know, the 60s and 70s or 60s Batman was so campy that even though Cesar Romero was a good actor and did what they wanted him to do, you know, there, it wasn't super scary because it was so campy. Um, whereas the Heath Ledger Joker, you know, and Jack Nicholson, but Heath Ledger especially, just the fear that it, that it, it made me feel was was spooky. It was definitely intense. And you know, a funny thing about Cesar Romero's version of Joker is that they painted all the makeup over the mustache. And they did that because Cesar Romero was a diva and refused to shave his mustache for the role. So they just painted over it. And I can't believe you don't remember the uh, dark uh, where, uh, like, the, the birth of the fucking uh, bat pod, basically, where Batman's protecting Harvey Dent and he sacrifices the fucking Batmobile or the Tumblr, whatever the fuck. And out of that, because the Joker throws a, or launches a rocket launcher at the SWAT car and the Batmobile jumps up just in time and intercepts the fucking rocket and then you get the birth of the bat pod. I do remember that scene now that you mention it. I just, it's been so long since I've seen that movie that I, I just, yeah, seeing so many other movies in between, it, stuff starts to blend together and I lose track of stuff. But I do remember that scene. That's a pretty cool scene for sure. That's my fault. Again, I have these headphones in and every time I pull my head around, I keep pulling my phone down and then it keeps falling. So And I uh, keep thinking it's the damn app. <laughs> Human error is to blame this time, people. That's correct. Um, so that was number two, and number one with the big drum roll uh, is Thanos. And and I don't know if I picked Thanos mostly because he is the most recent at the forefront of my mind. That doesn't d d diminish how uh, how much of a villain he is and how big a villain he is. Um, I just you know he's he's made the most impact recently. Um, in my brain, he's the freshest in my head, but he's a really cool character. I mean, the the sense of calm and um, tone that he delivers Thanos' dialogue with is is just ultimately creepy. I mean, he's never, even when he's like frustrated and mad, he's never, he still just stays in that calm tone that just makes my blood curdle. I mean, I just, you know, and, and he's so ideologically set in his way 
that there's no turning him around. You know, even Gamora or uh, Nebula can't get to him. You know, and and the the snap at the end of um, Infinity War is is the ultimate 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 bad guy move. I mean, there's never been a bigger bad guy move. He did what he wanted to do. He got the stones and he snapped half of everybody out of existence. And it's like, whoa. I mean, all the other things that, you know, whatever, you know, they've done this, in my opinion, it's the biggest thing that any villain has done. And he has so many scenes. I mean, in, 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 the, in those two movies, you know, that are great. I mean, obviously the scenes, you know, where he's fighting the Avengers uh, in Endgame, you know, the, the final scene, um, uh, the scene where he kills Tony, um, the scene where he's fighting Cap and, or where he's fighting uh, Thor and then Cap picks up the hammer. You know, we talked about all these in Endgame. Um, the scene at the end of uh, Infinity War after he snapped and he's just sitting on that cliff as he said he wanted to do and just overlook nature, you know, a universe that's, that's better off. That's a great scene. He's just, he just embodies everything that a villain should be. And he's got some great cohorts and a great army. You know, the children of Thanos are super intimidating. Ebony Ma is a great character. Um, I can't think of Ebony the woman. Ebony Ma name. is such a creepy fucking. Right. If I was a kid, that thing would give me fucking nightmares. Right. That what's is such a nightmarish. Uh, you're what's talking the about uh, it kind of looks from midnight. Yeah, that kind of looks like uh, Helia or Hella. She kind of looks like Kate Blanchett and Ragnarok. Yeah, Approxima Midnight. She's pretty hot. And that's a cool, she's a cool character too. And she's, you know, pretty evil. I mean, all the children of Thanos in and of themselves, you know, at least the main ones have some really cool evil characteristics too. But for me, Thanos right now takes the cake as far as the best villain. And I think that the biggest reason for that is the fact that he accomplished what he wanted to do. Now, obviously in the end he got killed, but he, he did what he wanted to do and was content with that. And very rarely do you see a villain actually get to achieve his end game and, and, and have it be such a major end game. Yeah, it was, uh, they definitely, uh, my hat is off to everybody involved with bringing the character Thanos to the big screen and making him just hands down the, uh, the baddest fucking Marvel villain of all time. Definitely. At, at least on the big screen. Right. I forgot to mention that I don't know if you watched any of the fucking Netflix TV shows, but they have some pretty cool villains. I mean, the, the best one on there is uh, the Kingpin, but they have some pretty damn good villains. Now, the Kingpin is played by... Um... Vincent D'Onofrio. Okay, but okay, so that's not who I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of who is the the villain in Black Lightning on Netflix. Uh, um, I don't watch that show because I can't get past the stupid uh, costume is ridiculous. <laughs> um, so uh, that's he's the villain in Luke Cage, right? Uh, no, the Kingpin is the villain in uh, Daredevil. Daredevil, that's right. Okay. Okay, yeah, I haven't watched that um, show. I watched some Jessica Jones. I watched some Luke Cage. I've watched some Monkey Iron Fist, whatever that is, <laughs> um, and a little bit of uh, Black Lightning. I watched that when it was on regular TV, um, and then I watched a couple episodes on Netflix, so. But I haven't Honestly, watched that's the only one. Like, I guarantee you, you'll be sucked in from Jump. Like, that show is so fucking good. It doesn't Daredevil. even... Yeah, it, it makes me mad that Netflix canceled them because Daredevil so much fucking... Like, if you want a, a TV show that feels like a comic book... And that's the one to go. And Vincent D'Onofrio is you. Man, you you just you need to fucking watch it. That's yeah, yeah. I'll have to check it out. So I have three more honorable mentions, and then I am done with my list. So uh, 
the honorable mentions that I have here are Alfred Molina as Doc Ock in Spider-Man 2. Um, and we talked about that a little bit when we went over uh, movies and stuff before. Um, you know, I, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies are, are good movies. They're, my, you know, my, my favorite Spider-Man movies. I, Homecoming was good. I'm, I'm curious to see Far From Home. I like Tom Holland. Um, I still lean towards the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. As being, uh, you know, I like them more than that. I liked Homecoming, and I definitely like them more than the two amazing Spider-Man movies. Um, and I still think that, that Alfred Molina and the Doc Ock character from Spider-Man 2 is the best villain from those three movies. Um, so, gets an honorable mention. And then uh, I've got Danny DeVito as the Penguin in Batman Returns. Um, you know, Danny DeVito is always excellent. He's another one of those guys that, you know, they were able to get for a superhero movie to play a role that I thought was uh, kind of a, 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 an interesting place for an actor of his merit and depth to, to be at. But he did it great. You know, the scenes where he's uh, under the city in his, you know, whatever that is, cave water lair is He's so great. That he's just great in general. But all those scenes down there where he's eating the fish and, and he's just super creepy. That that he's that that Danny DeVito penguin character really creeped me out. He made my skin call. It was it was very unnerving. Um, and then I have uh, the last honorable mention I have is Ego. Uh, Kurt Russell is Ego from the Guardians uh, of the Galaxy Volume Two. Um, I just thought he was a really cool character. Uh, Kurt Russell played the character well. He always, you know, he's a good actor. Again, another good actor they were able to reel into a superhero movie. And I thought that he did a really good job of embodying. So those are the ones that I couldn't find a place for, but I thought needed to be mentioned. Drop your phone again. So that's my list of uh, superhero villains. Hey, I respect that. I can tell you, although I haven't. Uh really gotten into it with a pick in mind, I can tell you that my list will be completely different. Uh, I doubt if uh, we're not going to have one any or crossovers. Two. Really? There might be one or two crossovers. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just very more, surprised. You're, you're a little more versed. Um, probably, maybe in, in, in the movies and uh, obviously the source material than I am, so I don't know. Um, but it'll be very interesting to see. I'm curious to see because I was looking at a list of superhero movies and I went through the list and I'm curious to think of who you, where you could have gotten a number of villains that were not, it didn't strike me as there were many more than 25 or 30 you know, actual movie villains to really reference. I mean, there are, but um, so it'll be very interesting to see which ones you come up with. Absolutely. Um, you got a little time. You got some time for some news. I think got one news article that I just wanted to chat Game of Thrones with you. Absolutely. Quick, you've seen the... Yeah, so I just saw on uh, I got to give the props to the original source from um, ScreenRant.com. I don't remember the name of the person who wrote that article, but Disney has now fully acquired complete control over Hulu. I saw that. I heard that on the radio today. Yeah, man. It's that mouse owns everything. Shit. It's going to be that way pretty soon. Like, I fully believe it will at one point come down to Netflix versus Hulu and then, or Disney versus Netflix, and then Disney will just buy Netflix, and it'll be all one big giant corporation umbrella type of situation. Yeah, I mean, I sure hope not. I mean, that's, you know, anti-trade laws are supposed to, you know, make that not, you know, you're not supposed to be able to do that, but clearly they're, they're creating a monopoly, and they're consolidating all of their, you know, their competition and buying them up and putting them under their own umbrella. Yeah, like my, my thing... They own- once they and well now that they own Hulu, but once uh, once they set up Disney Plus or the Disney streaming service, whatever it's going to be, and and have Hulu, I mean, there's other than Amazon Prime and uh, Netflix, there's not going to be anything else that's going to be of any substance that isn't theirs. Well, my my issue with this is that you've got 
all of Hulu. So you can do whatever the fuck you want to with it. Why not rebrand it Hulu Disney Plus or something like that? Like, what's the point of having this separate streaming service when you've already got one? Because the analytics are saying that Disney Plus won't be profitable until about 2021, 22. So what's the point of sinking all that money in there if you can just create all this content and you already have a streaming service ready to push it out? Yeah, it seems weird to me. I mean, the only reason I can think of is that they want to get people to pay for Hulu and the Disney Channel, the Disney streaming service, both, you know, and you can get them both ways if you, you know, if you have Hulu and you have everything but direct Disney content that they have to go to the Disney app for, then you can still have to force them to pay for both apps. I guess that's true. It just seems, I don't know, I guess I'm weird in the way that I would conduct myself with shit like this and just but you know more money is always more money well yeah and they're you know, they're greedy so i mean who knows it'll be interesting to see what they do i mean maybe at some point once they you know as i understand it they still are don't have um there's still some sort of five-year plan with hulu where like some of the rights or something they're still purchasing over the next five years so i guess it's not a total 100 percent uh, you know, overtake as of this second, I guess. They're slowly purchasing the rights to some other stuff along the way um, or rights to do other things, I guess. So uh, my guess is by the time they fully own Hulu and have released Disney streaming, that they'll do something to merge those two platforms together in some way, I would think. I mean, at least that would make sense to me. Yeah, only time will tell, I suppose, with this particular one. That's very true. I so Game of Thrones. Yeah, I don't know if you had any news or you just want to cut straight to the the gristle. I, I haven't had a chance to dive into any news. Everything on the internet's been Game of Thrones from this last episode, so it wasn't very Yeah, and the the updates that I get on my phone for you know, because I get I subscribe to a couple um uh, you know, whatever they are, uh, newsletters about movies, you know, websites that tell you movie stuff so they they send me notifications about stuff, and the only notifications I've been getting are all about Endgame. And the notifications I've been getting were about Endgame and how the uh, Russos are uh, ruining the, the the movie by giving these post-movie interviews about what the storyline means and, and going more in-depth about the, the story behind the story. And, and I mean, I haven't read a bunch of it, so I don't know all of it, but that's what it's all been, so I haven't really read any of it, so... Well, people need clarity on the end of Endgame. Like, you know, people, uh, not everybody's going to be savvy, and there's always going to be questions. I, I don't think there's any harm in what the Russos are doing with uh, answering questions because it cleared some, you know, it actually, I, I watched a video online yesterday where it cleared up, you know, we were both having a struggle on whether uh, returning to Vormir and returning the stone would put Black Widow back and they answered that no it doesn't like it has no effect there's no uh, you know it doesn't work like that apparently interesting so I mean I guess you know it's all fictional so I mean if it doesn't work then it doesn't work <laughs> I mean they could as easily said that it does and figured out some way to bring her back I mean I, you know time travel infinity stones all that stuff is all you know I mean obviously like I said when we talked about Infinity War one of the things that I liked or in uh, Endgame, uh, one of the things that I liked about the time heist concept was that in reality, in the quantum realm, true physicists, real scientists say that time doesn't exist in the same way that it does for us out here. So the idea that they were using that true scientific concept was cool. Um, and at the same time, being that nobody's been in the quantum realm or really knows how it works or any of that stuff, it, that really is just speculation anyhow. So it's all fictional. So, so I was saying it just further solidifies, obviously, that the Natasha Romanoff movie has to be a prequel because they've made it abundantly clear through Hulk saying he couldn't bring her back and now the Russo's post-movie saying, you know, you can't bring her back. She can't come back. It doesn't work like that. But, that they're not going to bring her back. So it's got to be a... I mean, what I find very interesting is that everything that I hear about Endgames, and I guess the Russo's, they did Infinity War and Endgame... And did they do what else have they done? Are those the only They did they did Cap two and three and then they did both the last Avengers movies. They talked to them 
they talk, the Russos and the interviewers talk to them like they're the head of Marvel Studios. I mean, they keep talking, the way they talk about stuff post Endgame is like, well, we're planning on doing this and we're planning on doing that. Well, you guys are just directors. I mean, you're not the only directors. You're not going to direct every movie from here on no, out. No, they're, they're, they're done after Endgame. They said the only movie they'd come back and do is Secret Wars. And other than that, they're done. They're not making any more Marvel movies. So there you go. So, I mean, it's like, what, why are you guys continuing to put forth, you know, what the future of Marvel Studios is going to be when you're not even involved? Well, I think because they set up, this last movie set up the future of the, the whatever right. the next chapter is of the uh, MCU. Yeah, and like I guess they're that's responsible. True. I guess that's true. So. But enough of talking about the future. Let's talk about the end of something else, and that would be the end of the Game of Thrones series on HBO. So let me. Was that's not the final? That wasn't the final episode. No, it wasn't. But you know, you got okay. one more. Right. Okay. So you threw me off a little bit with the final because I was thinking to myself, "Wait, I watched it. And I don't remember it being like over, over." I mean, obviously, it's over because we have. Uh, so many things that take place. Uh, we have the death of, clearly the death of Cersei and Jamie, uh, with the building coming down on top of them, the Red Keep, I would imagine. It appears that, I mean, they don't show them dead, but for all intents and purposes, it sure looks like they die in each other's arms, crushed under the, the weight of the Red Keep coming down. Uh, we get uh, Jamie Lannister leaving uh, Sir Brienne of Tartha after a one-night stand, being the kind of a douchebag. But hey, you know, he's always been Cersei's lapdog, and so there he is again, you know, I mean, goes back to what he knows. That's uh, a pathetic endeavor. Truly disappointing. Takes place in that film. I mean, I, the, the fact that the gold guard threw down their weapons in the street and surrendered and the bell rang and Daenerys still torches the whole city was just beyond my belief. The whole time my mouth was open. I just couldn't believe it. Every time that dragon breathed more fire onto the city, I just was like, what are you doing? What? I mean, you were, you were, you're supposed to be this benevolent queen, you know? And here you are destroying everything. She's already... Yeah, so I was saying, you know, every time that that dragon breathed more fire on the city, on King's Landing, I was, my mouth was just agape. Like, what are you doing? I mean... You're supposed to be the benevolent queen. I know that you, you know, burnt plenty of people, but those were all people that in theory kind of deserved it. I mean, she just went way rogue. And I think that what it does is it really sets up a final confrontation between Jon Snow and her because you could see that he kind of turned his opinion of her watching her destroy the city when she didn't have to. Yeah, it was, uh, I don't know, probably the unpopular opinion, but I feel like this undoes all of the hard work that not only her as a character, but the writers of the show put in to be like, she is not her father. And then to just like, like, I understand, you know, snapping, but to just be like that, like, you know, like, at this point, she doesn't have nobody to rule over anymore. She's killed everybody. She doesn't even have a fucking... There is no more King's Landing because she burned it all. Yeah. And it's just like, I wasn't... I wasn't a gay pedic because I kind of... You know, once they start talking about... Once she was, like, uh, back at her stronghold, she's like, I'm not really hungry anymore. Like, oh, this bitch has gone off the deep end. Like, she's gonna... Right. Yeah, she's going to murder everybody. And well, when, was, he, uh... when, when he spurned her again, basically, you know, when she came to, when they came together again and they kissed again, which is really gross, and she basically said, I don't care who you are, you know, and I still love you and I want you. And he basically said, I can't do this. You're my aunt. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not doing this. And backed away. I think that. And then she didn't eat after that. And then she wigged out. I mean, I think that the idea is, is that, She's now another one in a long line of insane Targaryens or Targaryens that have gone over the edge. I mean, I know there's only the Mad King by name, but 
all the Targaryen, all the Targaryens have been kind of described as being very extreme, you know. And except and, for uh, John's dad, he right? Seemed like he was a fucking psycho, like the rest of them. That's true. I think he was the only one that wasn't really a psycho like the rest of them. So even Daenerys' brother, he was terrible. Oh, he was a complete fucking... Yeah, Viserys? Like I was talking with someone at work today. I was like, yeah. I was like, didn't he sell his sister to the yeah. Dothrakis? Like, yeah. yeah. I was like, that guy was a piece of shit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So much happened in that episode. I think Arya is going to kill Daenerys. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, God, she looked, she, man, she went through it, too, in that scene, running, and I thought she was going to get trampled and killed, where she was getting, man, they were running all over. I'm like, you know, it's very weird the way they do that with characters, like, and I guess, you know, to a certain extent, some of that is human, is, is supposed to be, is supposed to be a take on real life, and I guess real life can be like that sometimes, but to see the difference in Arya, you know, she's shooting arrows, she has sex with Gendry. She's ready to go to war. She has no fear. She's talking shit to the mountain. They fight the, you know, she kills the Night King. And then all of a sudden, she's like this tiny little girl again that can't even take care of herself. And she's getting trampled by these people where she's just crying and scared of everything again. And it was just like this weird kind of change. And, and I guess maybe it's that sense of being overwhelmed and, and in the moment you're, you're super scared because you all of a sudden you can't control what's going on around you. But it just seemed like a weird place to put her in. Yeah, I, I feel like this episode was a backpedal for more than one character. I definitely did not see, was it Viserys or whatever 